from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, February 14th. Today, a family grappling with a name change and what it means to be non-binary. And the wisdom of America's first president. I'm really interested in sort of like what you're hoping to get out of your conversations with your family. You know, kind of where Mm -hmm. things stand now and like where you want things to stand. Um, like I would like for them to not refer to me as like extremely feminine, like descriptors. I want to be respected, but I don't want to be noticed, I guess. I'm Tara Barampour, and I am a staff writer at The Washington Post covering aging, generations, and demography. What would it mean for them to respect it? What would that look like or sound um, like? Probably just stop stop referring to me as a girl. I don't really expect them to start using they-them pronouns. I think they're at this generation where they're not used to that. So I'm not really expecting much from that. It On the other end of that conversation with Tara is Eli Cassavant, a non-binary 18-year-old living in Maryland. Tara connected with Eli and their family back in the spring. She says that they helped her better understand this generational divide that she was seeing play out in other spheres of life, including over email. I had been seeing emails from people that would identify their gender in their signature. She, her, they, them. And it struck me as someone who covers generations that that might have a different effect on people of different ages. Somebody who is, say, a potential employer or a potential university administrator or, you know, people who are older who would not be necessarily as familiar with these terms. After a long search for the right family to talk to, Tara got to know the Cassavants, Eli and their parents, Susan and Scott. Susan and Scott were on the verge of a difficult decision, whether to give Eli their blessing in legally changing their name. Eli is the middle child of three. Eli has two sisters, an older one and a younger one, who both are very comfortable being girls or women. And so... Eli's childhood was marked by a lot of princess dresses and pink and people making assumptions that Eli was going to be comfortable with that. And from a very young age, Eli was not comfortable with that. I was wearing sequins and pink stuff and, like, very uncomfortable. It was like, Marjorie, can you please go to Target, like, type of thing? Like, I I don't want to wear this. In middle school, Eli came out as... First, I think, as a lesbian, and later as bisexual, and at a certain point as a trans man. And the parents had an easier time understanding those labels that have been around for so much longer. But Eli was still not feeling comfortable and having a lot of anxiety and mental health issues. And it wasn't until Eli came upon this idea of non-binary that Eli really felt that this was a comfortable place. But for the parents, 
the idea of non-binary didn't make sense. The they, them, gender didn't make sense. It wasn't grammatically correct. It wasn't comfortable. I can even say, I don't get it. I don't get what non-binary really means or feels. But then again, Eli asked, you know, it said one time that she doesn't feel feminine. And I kind of like thought about it and it's like, I don't know what's feminine supposed to feel like. I see Eli as Eli. I call her her because I just, it's just what I guess I'm comfortable with. The they just doesn't work with my vocabulary. I, it just kind of like, I don't know, maybe like a second language. Trying to like, like retrain myself. Eli picked their new name a few years ago, Eli, to replace their birth name or their dead name, Deanna. And Eli is actually a shortening of their middle name, which is Elizabeth. They had considered other names, such as Charlie, but ended up with Eli. So did Eli's parents start using that name pretty consistently, or was that more of a process for them? I think it was more of a process. Because it wasn't just the parents, it was all of the relatives. It was the sisters. It was the brother-in-law. It was people who live in other states who are older, who may never have heard of non-binary or thought about people being trans. I mean, this is a a conservative Catholic family who grew up in conservative, small-town America environments. So I think the parents had to both come to terms with it themselves, but also figure out a way to present it to their world. I don't know exactly when they started feeling comfortable with it, or if they're entirely comfortable with it. Although at this point, they use it consistently with me, with Eli's friends at home. And what were some of the moments where that tension came up? At the cookout for graduation, there were many family members there, some of whom were from distant places, and Eli didn't know them well and didn't see them often. To a person, everybody referred to Eli as she. But, you know, the gay guest question, why does she want to be called Eli? Um, and I'll, my response is because she likes that name. And in this case, it's the first three letters of her, her middle name. And then it's, okay. Do you explain, like, about the whole non-binary thing to them? Or is it more just kind of like, oh, they think that she changed her name? Mm, I don't really, don't really explain it. And when I was chatting with some of the relatives that Eli didn't know as well and explaining who I was and why I was there, they were like, oh, I've never heard that term before. Or even Eli's sister was saying, I never heard about this until just yesterday when I heard that you were doing this story, this whole idea of binary. And a lot of people call it binary, like the concept of non-binary is so hard to deal with that people even misname it. Call it the exact opposite of what it is. I think it was more that people had heard that Eli was being called Eli now, but not the whole more complex backstory. So a little bit of backstory on Eli's year this year. Eli turned 18, graduated from high school, and started college. So aside from getting a high school diploma with their dead name, Deanna, on it. They now had to enroll in college as Deanna, 
even though they don't use that anymore and nobody they know uses that anymore. And they felt like this was going to haunt them throughout their life. Like my, my diploma from high school has Tiana on it. Yeah. So I think like any official like document like that is bound to have my birth name on it. They think Eli is just a nickname type of thing um, where it's just like my dead name just like makes me severely uncomfortable. In the college, they gave an email address that started with a D instead of E. And the professors would read out the name and it would be Deanna instead of Eli. And they would have to decide, well, am I going to correct the professor each time or am I just going to sit here and hear my dead name being called? So it was increasingly important to Eli over the summer and fall to do something about this situation. You know, my degree is still going to have Deanna on it, but I don't want to. Mm. So I kind of feel like I don't know when to do it because right now I could get a really bad reaction or I can wait and, like, have it be really awkward in the future. And even though Eli was 18 now, Eli wanted their parents' approval and didn't want to just go do this thing, which was symbolically a heavy, important thing for both Eli and their parents to to give up the name that the parents gave them and pick something else. And so Eli wanted their buy-in wanted to involve them in the decision and wanted their blessing. And so how did they talk to their parents about that? Did they ask or did they say, I'm going to be changing my name, I want you to know? Well, the initial conversation didn't go very well. They said, I would like to do this and I would like your support. And their mom didn't say anything. And Eli had arguments that they had planned like they, they had played out the conversation in their head and was trying to come up with the, what I would say if my mom says this and if my mom says that, here's how I would respond. Right. And the mom wasn't saying anything. And so Eli just pulled out one of those arguments, which was something they had seen on Instagram, which was, your name is a gift and you should be able to return it if you like. How did that go down? The mom looked down and Eli realized that this probably wasn't the time or the place to be resolving that question. And so they changed the subject. Why do you think it was so hard for them to accept a a new name? I mean, people change their names all the time. People get married and change their names. Earlier this summer when I was talking with Susan, she was saying that Eli has tried on many identities and they have come and gone and she wasn't sure that this one would stick. Prior to this, I guess Eli's tried on different, or, or genders maybe, the right word. Kind of like different skins. And, you know, tried it. And so I've heard gay, I've heard pansexual, lesbian. I think she's tried all of these on. And so I think the idea of legally changing your name doing something permanent like that for a teenager who dyes their hair different colors or is trans man one day or is a lesbian the other day. I think for them, it felt impulsive to do something as permanent as going to the court and changing your name when you possibly aren't at the end of your journey in terms of identity search. I think to Eli and probably 
other people in Eli's world and Eli's generation, there's more fluidity, both with gender and with names. And perhaps with more traditional people, there's more of a feeling that you get what you get, you don't get upset. And that if it is a gift, that it is something more like eye color or hair color or something that stays with you for the rest of your life. And that a gift is, I can imagine that for Eli's parents, a quote like that, I don't know, that your response could be, yeah, it is a gift. It's a gift that you should value. This is a thing that your parents give you along with your life that you can carry with you for the rest of your life. And returning it sounds ungrateful or sounds like you don't value everything that your parents have given you. I think you're right. And Susan was saying, you know, we thought a lot about what we were going to name you. And we picked this because we thought it was the best name for you. And so the idea that Eli didn't like it, I think, was hurtful and something that they had to get through and probably are still struggling with. I had a conversation with Eli and their mom the next time that Eli brought it up again because it went very differently. Second conversation was three months later after Eli had started college. And again, Eli was very nervous. Again, they were eating lunch. And Eli said, Um, so... I remember in the Poconos, we were talking at that like little roadside place about changing my name, you know, after the zoo. Okay. Do you remember it? I don't remember the roadside place, but I remember you talking about changing your name. Yeah. Um, So do you like think that's like even like a a plausible thing that you would allow or like support me through? And again, Susan was silent and didn't know what to say at first. But after a few minutes of thinking about it and a heavy anticipatory silence hung in the air and Eli's leg was furiously jiggling under the table, Susan said that it's something that she could get behind. Yeah, if you feel that strongly about it. Um, And the reason behind that was that She had had some time to think about it, and it had been a while since Eli had last brought it up, and Susan's thinking was that she wanted to see if Eli was really serious about it and if this was a temporary thing or if it was permanent. And the fact that Eli still stood by it and still wanted to do it made her feel more comfortable supporting it. I guess when I named you, I did the best I could. (laughs) Picked the name that I thought was, you know, was appropriate because I had a little girl. Things change and okay, the name didn't work out. I guess it's an easy fix. Yeah. What do you think about that? I think it's a valid thought process and I appreciate it. Are you surprised? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That that's my response? Yeah. So curious, what do you, what do you think? I thought there was going to be a little bit of pushback. And when I later talked with Susan about that moment, she said that over the course of the last few months since graduation, Eli has finally seemed to come out of this cloud that they had been under for a long time of depression and anxiety. And that seemed to be linked with finding this identity that felt more comfortable. And if 
being called Eli and changing their name legally was part of that. What was important to Susan and the way she put it was, Eli is loving herself again. And that made her so happy that she was willing to support the name change and let go of the old name. I would like, you know, my ID and stuff to say Eli because no one, no one realistically that I talk to on a regular basis called me Deanna or Deanna. Right, it's just on your medical records. It's on my medical records and like that's, it's like I have to flip between like. And then they started talking about the logistics of changing one's name. Which made Eli feel like, okay, if we're talking about how do you go to the courthouse, then I think I, I got what I wanted here out of this conversation. And you see that it, it's more than just a nickname. It is. Eli. It's more so. than a nickname. It's, it's a name. So. Tara Barampour writes about aging, generations, and demography for The Post. And now, one more thing ahead of President's Day. You know, I think with any of these great leaders, what is so important for people to feel is that they weren't born great. In fact, that's what one of the experts says, that George Washington was not born great. He took a journey to greatness. That's presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin. She's written the definitive biographies of presidents like Abraham Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt. And recently, she's turned her attention to George Washington. She says that the lessons of Washington's presidency are still relevant today. Right now, the thing that means so much, it seems to me, is what he's warning the citizens of then, way back then, is the baneful effects of party spirit, of the spirit of revenge, of sectionalism. And the worry that if we endure such things, it could lead to foreign influence and corruption because this fragile country needs to be strong and we need to remember ourselves as citizens of the American country as a whole. And you think about the partisan divide in the country. It was the beginning of the big divide that still is there today. And yet somehow we managed to get through that. I think that's a lesson for today, as is the peaceful transference of power. You know, at a time when our country was so fragile, when the revolution was won, and he voluntarily gives up his generalship, his commandership, and goes back to private life. And then again, after winning two terms in the government, he decides he's not going to run again for a third term. He could have stayed on for three, four, five terms as long as he lived. We would have had an entirely different presidency. So it's a really good reminder that there's a peaceful transference of power and that whatever happens in this next election, some people will be disappointed, other people are going to be excited, but you transfer that power and then you move on to the next person as he was willing to do. Doris Kearns Goodwin is the executive producer of a new series about George Washington airing on the History Channel. She spoke to Lillian Cunningham, host of the Post podcast Presidential. That's it for Post Reports. 
Thanks for listening. On Monday's episode, in honor of the holiday, we're going to have another story from Lillian, this one about a lesser-known president, Warren G. Harding. Now, Harding's presidency is not, of course, all about trysts. It's also about scandal. (laughs) Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Maggie Penman. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Muhammad, Jordan Marie Smith, Rennie Svernovsky, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. The Post's director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.